Hello and welcome to The Alcohol File, a podcast series that explores how we can better understand the impact of alcohol in our lives. This podcast is provided by Alcohol Action, Ireland's leading independent advocate for reducing alcohol harm. I'm your host, Una McKinney, and today, along with another terrific panel of guests, we'll explore a number of issues relating to the development of global alcohol policy. The WHO, the World Health Organization, in its Global Action Plan on Reducing Harmful Use of Alcohol, states, It is not possible to have an effective social development leading to improved human health and social capital without effective alcohol policy. So why are many countries seeking to establish effective alcohol policy? And what should be the central pillars of any such policy platform? And is the legislative approach necessary to ensuring meaningful progress? In Ireland, after nearly a decade of debate, the Public Health Alcohol Act was finally passed in 2018. This was the first time in our history that as a nation we have sought to address our societal harmful use of alcohol as a public health priority. Recognising, as the WHO outlines, the interactions between effective alcohol policy, better public outcomes and social development. So to discuss these issues today, I'm delighted to be joined by Karine Galopel-Morvan. Karine is a professor at the School of Public Health in Rennes in France and an honorary professor at the University of Stirling in Scotland. We're also joined by Colin Angus, Senior Research Fellow with the Sheffield Alcohol Research Group at the School of Health and Related Research in University of Sheffield. Colin has worked extensively on modelling the potential impact of alcohol taxation and minimum unit pricing policies on alcohol consumption and related harm. And I'm delighted to be joined as well by Karina Ferreira-Borges, Programme Manager for Alcohol and Illicit Drugs with the WHO European Office for Prevention and Control of Non-Communicable Diseases. So, Karine, if I can start with you, I'd like to give our listeners a sense of the journey that the WHO, um, and in particular the WHO European Region Office, has been on since the 1990s, and you know, beginning with its leadership to reduce the harm done by alcohol, and maybe just explore for us a little bit, just why is it so important that reducing the harmful use of alcohol remains a public health priority? And I suppose, you know, we're, we're, we're conscious of some of the, the strategic context that the WHO policy framework outlines. And I was particularly struck when I was reviewing the documentation again, this quote that it says, it's not possible to have effective social development leading to improved human health and social capital without effective alcohol policy and it's not possible to reduce alcohol related harm without improved human health and social capital. I think that's a really interesting place to start. So maybe you could just give us a little bit of, of, the, of the context of that and maybe we can outline where, where we're at now in 2020. Thank you very much, Unan. So I'll give a brief, a brief overview of, um, you know, first of all, of what 
WHO has been doing uh, in terms of this area. So the core functions of WHO are very much linked to um, monitoring, uh, you know, uh, health trends and looking at, you know, mortality and looking at the impact in health of people. So basically what happens is that WHO um, publishes in a regular basis many reports uh, which are helpful for member states, for the countries, to decide on how they are going to go about a certain topic. So we publish data and we also publish uh, policy recommendations, which are basically based on the best evidence which is available worldwide. So if we start and we look back at all this process regarding alcohol consumption, uh, WHO produced at global level very important reports very early in the 90s about alcohol harm. And these reports, which were um, basically talking about, you know, alcohol, the harm, and then, you know, what would be the kind of responses that would be available were key to uh, then the, f the developments that we saw coming up, uh, you know, and led to the global strategy uh, in 2010. Uh, very early in the European region, uh, which is where, you know, the region that I'm coordinating, um, member states uh, uh, realized that we had a, s a serious problem. So we had the numbers, we could see that we had very huge uh, alcohol consumption and that this alcohol consumption was leading to very harmful uh, effects. And because of that, they came up with a proposal for a European action plan uh, which basically att uh, attempted to reduce alcohol consumption by 25%, meaning that we wanted to see people consuming less alcohol, and therefore, once we had that, we would have you know, better health for people. Um, this attempt led also to a very important ministerial conference uh, on young people and alcohol, because one of the other key features that we were seeing was that it was not just about alcohol consumption, it was also about the way that young people were being targeted and were starting to consume and, you know, basically binge drinking, drinking a lot, and this had a lot of impact. Um, with all these uh, features, you know, the numbers, the data, and also the evidence uh, which uh, became available throughout all these years, in 2010, uh, WHO uh, gathered together with member states, uh, uh, published the, what is known as the Global Strategy to Reduce Harmful Use of Alcohol. So what is this? Basically, this is a commitment by the member states that basically uh, decided that alcohol was a very important area where the, the countries needed to do more, they needed to reduce consumption, and then you know there was a set of policies that member states agreed to move forward to be able to achieve that. Um, and, you know, if we look at alcohol consumption as being one of the leading risk, risk factors for population health in the world uh, and the impact that it has in terms of development, not just in terms of, you know, health, but also in terms of economic development for countries, we understand that this is a priority for, for the countries. Um, and after that uh, agreement, after the global strategy was adopted by the member states, we saw many other initiatives that came into place in a way, uh, you know, um, helping the countries to uh, implement those action areas that have been set by the global strategy. Some of those areas were linked to um, very clear goals which were uh, 
you know, linked, linked to, you know, reducing affordability of alcohol. We know that people will drink more if alcohol, you know, is, is cheap. And we know also that because young people were linked to this uh, problem, if they are exposed to marketing, they will be consuming earlier and they will be, uh, of course, you know, changing the way that they drink. So many of those policy uh, commitments were linked to uh, areas which, for which we know there's very clear evidence. And the clear evidence uh, is, you know, called the WHO best buys, and they are centralized in three key areas. So first of all, reducing uh, the availability of alcohol, so less alcohol available means less consumption also, less access and then the less consumption, but also restricting uh, uh, the marketing and, you know, uh, totally banning uh, the alcohol marketing or restricting uh, uh, the marketing and uh, increasing the price of uh, alcoholic beverages. So this was the big focus of the policies that were put in place by WHO. Very good. Yeah. And, and, and in the context of the European Action Plan that was 2012 to 2020, I mean, can you just give us some sense perhaps of the, you know, of what you think so far has been some of the outcomes in relation to the, the, the Action Plan? Because we're obviously at 2020. Um, have we had significant success so far or are we, are we stalled a little bit? Well, um, I can tell you that member states, I mean, gathered together uh, very recently and the conclusions were very disappointing. So we have a disappointing reality, uh, which makes very, uh, you know, increasingly urgent our vision that we need a world and we need a region where levels of alcohol consumption need to be reduced because this will impact in the mortality and morbidity that we see, which is associated with alcohol consumption. So therefore, what happened and also at the World Health Assembly was a decision that uh, countries would like to revisit uh, the global strategy and come up with a more concrete plan of action. This plan of action is now being developed by uh, WHO and it will be submitted for the consultation of the member states as well as civil society organizations uh, that can inform the development of the new action plan. Sure. So we're setting ourselves to a new action plan and uh, you know, with more concrete uh, uh, results that we hope to see uh, being achieved by that. Very good. Colin, maybe, maybe we could just bring you in at this point and just pick up a little bit on, on some of the, um, in specific terms, the, the best buys policies that Karina has outlined there. And I know that you've done very extensive and excellent work in a recent report for the WHO European region um, that looked at uh, the challenges to effective pricing policies um, across the region. And in that sense, you know, we know that increasing the price that consumers pay for alcohol is one of the most effective tools to policymakers. Um, so maybe you could just talk us through what are those are those options in relation? What are the tools around pricing? And, um, you know, we can expand a little bit as, as you go through them, perhaps. Yeah, of course. So um, it's easy to think of pricing policies as just a kind of you know, a, a simple single idea, you make alcohol more expensive, the idea is people buy less, you get less harm. But actually, it's it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, sort of if you unpack what pricing policies are, then um, there's a huge variety of possible options. And while the evidence says that um, they can all be effective to different extents, there are big differences in terms of just how effective different approaches to alcohol pricing are. And also, really importantly, 
their distributional effects across the population. So um, who is being affected by those policies and therefore how your policies are um, good at targeting or not the groups that you might particularly want to target um, because they're the ones suffering the most harm. So the, um, like the main pricing policy, I guess, in a sense, the one that's most commonly implemented almost everywhere has to some extent is tax. Um, but there's, but again, even tax is more complicated than just saying, oh, we've just got tax because there's different ways in which you can tax alcohol. So you, you can tax alcohol on the basis of, sure. um, yeah the volume of alcohol in the product, right? That seems like the simplest and most sensible approach since it's the alcohol that's causing the problem. Um, but equally, you can also tax products on the basis of just how much liquid there is, uh -huh. or you can tax things on the basis of the price, right? So that's what VAT is, just add on an extra percentage of the price. And what we see um, as part of this WHO report that we published over the summer, um, we basically mapped... Uh, current tax systems across the whole of the WHO Europe region. And we found huge variation almost everywhere as some kind of weird hybrid system. We have a little bit of taxing stuff by the alcohol content, a little bit of taxing stuff by the product volume, and a little bit of um, taxing stuff based on the price. And partly that that comes from the sort of the, the broader legislative structures that are in place. So the EU, for example, has quite a lot of... Um, I would say slightly strange rules, certainly not entirely um, uh, in line with public health objectives about how you tax alcohol. For example, you have to tax wine on the, the volume of product. You're not allowed under EU law to tax wine on the basis of the alcohol content. So you can have a bottle of wine at 9% um, ABV and another bottle of wine at 13.5% ABV, hmm. and they have to have the same tax levied on them that's a reasonable anomaly all right yeah we, that, that's really strange one of them has half as much alcohol in it again so you know that's that that's strange and a, a well-designed public health system from a tax perspective would would sort things out like that although in the context of ireland it is worth saying actually that i think um within the constraints that the eu regulations put on tax ireland actually has one of the most sensible tax systems in that there's not uh, any one product has a much lower tax rate on it uh, than others. Whereas in the UK, for example, we have white cider, which is taxed at a much lower rate and is therefore incredibly oh, cheap right. relative to other things. Sure. And of course, in Ireland, we're trying to add to that sophisticated, let's call it sophisticated taxing model by trying to introduce minimum unit pricing as well. And, you know, in your report, you do, you, you do talk about that as well and, and, and how that kind of hybrid of taxation and minimum unit pricing is such a strong um, measure for, to, for improving public health. Absolutely. So it, it's easy to just throw minimum pricing in with taxes, you know, another way of making alcohol more expensive. But there's there's some really important differences between tax and minimum pricing. So tax affects everything, right? There is some tax levied on all products in all alcohol products in most countries anyway, certainly in Ireland. Um, and so if you increase tax, you make everything more expensive, whereas a minimum price very specifically focuses on cheap alcohol. It says that you can't sell any alcohol at a very low price. And so by only targeting the very cheap alcohol, that tends to be the alcohol that's bought by the heaviest drinkers. So um, what you're doing is you're only increasing the price of the very cheapest alcohol and you're not affecting the price of the, the, the alcohol that's the, the more expensive alcohol that's more commonly drunk by the moderate drinkers. And so what that 
that effective targeting means is that um, minimum pricing policies can kind of you can get more benefit in terms of reducing overall alcohol-related harm while not, uh, you know, I always put this in inverted commas when I write it down, penalizing moderate drinkers yes. to, the, to the same extent. So if we, uh, you know, we've done some modeling work for Ireland about the, the potential impact of minimum unit pricing. And yes. we estimated that a one euro minimum unit price would reduce overall consumption by nearly 9% which is a pretty substantial effect. Yeah, and just to interject for a second, just to explain to people in relation to the minimum unit pricing in Ireland that the Sheffield Alcohol Research Group was the, the source of the, the data and the analysis that led us to that piece of legislation as well. So this, this 9% or 8.8% overall reduction in consumption, that's very different between different groups in the population. So people drinking within the low-risk drinking guidelines they would change their consumption by just over 3%, oh. whereas the very heaviest drinkers would reduce their consumption by 15%. Which is the critical point, yeah. Absolutely. And if you're trying to um, reduce alcohol-related harm, that's exactly the group that you want to be targeting, right? Whereas tax is, while it's effective, it's a much more blunt instrument because if yeah. you raise taxes, then you're raising the prices for everyone, whereas minimum price is really much more just affecting the price of the alcohol that the, the heavier drinkers are buying. Yeah, and that 15% reduction, potential 15% reduction amongst the heaviest drinkers obviously has a huge or real potential to reduce the level of acute alcohol episodes that are happening as well, because obviously at 15%, like that's quite a significant reduction in relation to the level of alcohol that people would be consuming in, in, in one particular acute alcohol episode. Can you just, I, I was struck as well in the report, it's a really excellent report and obviously it goes through a huge amount of detail, which we can't do today. But in the context, I was just curious about the ineffectiveness of focusing on just on on just below cost selling. And this is a particular issue that comes up quite a lot here um, in relation to, you know, restoring what people want to see as a below cost selling ban or, you know, um, uh, you know, that, that, that that in itself would be the, the silver bullet to our issues. But you, you outlined that it, it essentially isn't that effective in, in the context of what we're trying to do. Could you maybe just expand a little bit on that? Yeah, certainly. So um, the idea of stopping people from using alcohol as a loss leader to kind of bring people into stores seem, you know, is a is a sound basis, right? And um, I certainly wouldn't tell people that they should definitely not do it. But there are um, the sort of there's two challenges with um, bans on below cost selling, right? And one of them is that actually selling things at a loss is, as far as all of the evidence suggests, pretty rare, right? It's it's not great business to sell things at a loss um and, and the other thing is that it's actually really hard to implement because how do you define cost yeah exactly right? and so there's two different approaches you can take to this so there's the approach you can take in the uk which is where we say let's imagine that um the retailer has zero cost and will define the cost as just the tax that this should be on the product. You're not allowed to sell anything for lower than the, the cost of the tax. Now, that's obviously below the true cost, right? And so basically nothing is sold at below that level. So although we have that policy in England, um, I'd be amazed if it's had any impact on anything because nothing was being sold that cheaply. And the alternative is that you collect data on what the true retailer cost of the product is. 
but that's that's just a logistical nightmare you know you have to collect all of this paperwork and how do you really know that the cost that people are reporting is the true cost and my understanding is that um you know the the kind of the paperwork burden and the challenges of administering it were were a large part of why the um, the Irish below cost ban was sort of removed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and, and the, there was obviously a, a a wider agenda around the kind of a liberalisation of of trade as well, and and you know below cost selling was regarded largely as an anti competitive uh, approach as well. So it kind of. It, whilst it had some benefit to consumers, perhaps at another level, obviously it has had a huge impact in relation to the increased level of, of alcohol sales from the off-trade. Um, Karine, maybe just if I could bring you in as well at this stage, and, and um, Karina had outlined earlier, you know, the, the best buys in relation to marketing and, and obviously the intention largely to focus on trying to uh, essentially curb the journey of, 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 of our children into early initiation of uh, alcohol use. And obviously marketing plays, as we know, a marketing plays a huge role in trying to stimulate that market. We're conscious of, of the experience that has been France over the last two or three decades um, and how France largely was the pioneer in many respects in relation to bringing about a set of measures that restricted the marketing and the promotion of alcohol through what we know as Lovan. Um, and if you could maybe, for, for, for the sake of our listeners who wouldn't necessarily be familiar with the, with the detail of this, perhaps you might just outline for us the historical context that led to that and you know how effective it, it, it has been over over the period of time yes of course um yeah we, we are very lucky we are very lucky because we have um, uh, the evan law that regulates uh, uh, alcohol marketing in france and this law was um, is quite old because it was adopted and voted in france uh, in uh, 1991 so three decades from now and um, it's interesting to note that uh, this law was implemented before uh, much uh, scientific evidence uh, for the influence of marketing of alcohol products on behaviors was available. So there was a very strong political will at that time in France, uh, which is not really the case at that moment, unfortunately. Uh, so this law was pushed, uh, I would say, by five professors of medicine, that had uh, in 1991 uh, uh, very strong media exposures and that uh, spoke a lot of the impact of marketing on young people and minors and so on, uh, and the impact of this marketing on the alcohol uh, behaviors and alcohol initiation. And um, in 1991, uh, these five uh, professors of medicine, uh, they draft uh, a public health plan for not only alcohol but also tobacco products that um, this plan included um, marketing and um, uh, advertising regulation in it and uh, they, these people they met and collaborated with uh, the French uh, Minister of Health at that time um, whose name is was Claude Evin and uh, thank, thanks to these people thanks to the media uh, the, the Evin law was passed in, in 1991 this law this law had different 
Ames, and we uh, we had the chance to interview Claude Evin uh, some in the last months, and um, he told us that uh, the various aim of uh, aims of the, the Evin law was, of course, to discourage alcohol consumption because now uh, we know that uh, there is an, an effect, an impact, a positive impact of alcohol advertising on on consumption. So, of course, therefore, uh, the, the aim is also of this law is also to reduce mortality and morbidity. And uh, uh, maybe the, the most known aim of this law is to protect young people from alcohol advertising. But Claude Evin told us that uh, the aim of, uh, of his law is more general, actually. Um, the initial aim that... Um, he had um, when the law was voted was to denormalize alcohol in French society, uh, which means to reduce, to decrease the very positive image of uh, alcohol products uh, uh, in France. And th the purpose of this law was also to support uh, government policies uh, in 1991. Uh, by reducing the attractiveness of alcohol through restric restricting advertising, he told us that um, it's it's not possible to 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 launch and to uh, implement campaigns or measures that aim to reduce alcohol consumption and at the same time uh, to allow uh, messages and advertising that uh, can encourage alcohol use. So the aim of this law was also to, to be consistent with um, different measures and, uh, and campaigns that, yeah. that aim to combat, uh, combat alcohol use. So I think it's very important to say that uh, the aim of the alcohol, uh, the, the Evan law, uh, is really larger than to only reduce alcohol consumptions. And maybe um, I can get into details of um, what is this law and what are the core measures of this law, uh, because uh, it's very, very close to what um, uh, you, you are doing in Ireland. Uh, so this law has three different measures regarding alcohol marketing, and uh, I mean. Um, the first measure is to prohibit uh, alcohol advertising through media that target young people. And uh, this law um, allow, allows less intrusive media. Um, for instance, I won't uh, quote all media that are allowed or not, but allowed media are set out in the law. It's very important to say that because it's clearer in, in the way the, the law was written. Uh, for instance, um, allowed media are... Um, adult press, radio with a system of water, water shade, uh, inside points of sales, leaflets and mail shots, etc., etc. And uh, any medium that is not listed in the Evan law is banned. So it's very clear, clear to to uh, uh, to write a law like that. It means that it's it's banned to advertise alcohol products in France on television, in cinemas, in festivals in cultural and sporting events, so sponsorship is uh, is banned, etc., uh, etc. Et and because um, the, the restriction on, on media is uh, partial and not comprehensive, the second measure of the Evan law is uh, to, uh, to control and to restrict advertising content too. So product uh, information, uh, ad alcohol advertising must contain only factual and informative data uh, and objective qualities uh, on alcohol products. 
and attractive ads, ads with very positive, evocative images on sex, sport, uh, uh, glamour, pleasure, and so on, are banned in France. And uh, the third measure requires that a warning, uh, which is alcohol abuse is dangerous for health, um, to appear on all alcohol, alcohol advertisement in order to, to ban, to counteract uh, the, the positive uh, uh, messages on alcohol ads. So you, you asked me uh, the, the effectiveness of this law. Um, actually, it has not been evaluated so much. Uh, we conducted some research uh, on um, its uh, effectiveness in, in the last years. We had a, a funding of the French National Cancer Institute. But more generally, we can say that uh, the, the loi 20, the 20 law, uh, is effective because, for instance, compared to the UK, to Ireland or to other countries, um, in France, there, there is less, people are less exposed to alcohol ads because there is no uh, ads on TV, in cinemas, extra. And um, people are also exposed to very less attractive and positive ads. But the problem of this law, uh, if I go on with its effectiveness, is that it could be really more effective. Um, in 90, for instance, in 1991, Billboards in streets that are very visible for uh, children and uh, vulnerable people, and on the internet too. Of course, in 1991, the internet did not exist. Uh, there was a very strong pressure and a very strong and effective lobbying of the alcohol industry uh, all over the, the, the last three decades. And now, uh, this uh, this new media, billboards in streets and the internet, are allowed in the even law. Uh, it means that uh, people can be exposed um, to this media, uh, and, and it's possible with the even law. So um, the law can be more effective if uh, there are no lobbying and that really weakened uh, this law. And the other problem of the law at the moment is that the, it, it has it is not very well enforced by the alcohol industry, and there is a, a very very. Uh, uh, famous NGO in France, which is called the AMPA, that um, often uh, suits the alcohol industry uh, that does not really enforce uh, the even law. And the, this NGO, the AMPA, um, uh, often uh, wins uh, trials. Um, so because of these two problems, a very strong lobbying that really decreased the, 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 uh, the measures of the even law, and because the even law is not very effective and the uh, the alcohol industry is always trying to escape it. Uh, the even law could be really more effective. And of course, like it was said before for other measures, um, it's important to get combined measures. Uh, regulation of uh, alcohol uh, advertising and marketing is, is uh, very, very important. But of course, it must be combined with measures on prices, availabilities, packagings, uh, uh, flavored products, and so on, because the alcohol industry is very, very clever and smart uh, and can be compared to the tobacco industry for that to develop very, very effective tools on the market to increase uh, uh, sales. So it's a constant fight to maintain the even law like, like it was <laughs> and like it is. Uh, and uh, the problem at the time uh, in France is that the political will on the, on the alcohol measures and alcohol plants uh, is very low. So 
we are not very optimistic maybe in, in the next years, but for the moment we are, it's, it's important to maintain the law like it is, but it's really a constant fight to do it. Okay. If I could maybe, if I could bring back in Karina at that point, and maybe just to reflect on, on some of the comments that, that Karine has made, which kind of brings us forward into looking to the, the future strategy and the, the work that's likely to come from the WHO for the future strategy that's likely to be in place in 2022. So in that context, what, Karina, do you see as some of the major challenges and the complexities that face you as a policymaker and, and, and public health policymakers to address, you know, the ever-evolving marketing techniques and and uh, especially I'm thinking here of the the, adva- the advances that have been made in digital marketing. Um, yeah, thank you. I, I think uh, I would like to come back to one of very important uh, thing that uh, Karin said, which was about you know policy coherence. And you know, making sure that uh, everybody is you know aligned with what is the main message that, at national level, uh, you want to pass uh, in terms of alcohol policy. So I think the Loi Evin is really the best example that we have in terms of you know marketing. But as uh, it was said, we are evolving, and we have now uh, new challenges which relate to digital marketing, and uh, and this needs to be addressed. So uh, this has been voiced by the member states. And and WHO is producing a technical document which is basically uh, related to cross-border alcohol marketing, um, you know, uh, also capturing the issues of advertising and also promotional, uh, promotional activities. Uh, and this report is going to be released in the second part of the 2021. 20, uh, so it will be a very important document because it will also... Uh, uh, bring all the evidence. The aim of the document is to provide the evidence, uh, you know, in this area and support the member states to take some decisions. I think that there are areas where member states can definitely do a difference in terms of their national policies, and you know, uh, I think Colin just voiced, just uh, you know, uh, um, highlighted some of the key areas where more can be done, you know, minimum uh, unit pricing is one of these areas. So some countries like Finland have put up in place, uh, you know, important uh, regulatory measures, but still there are challenges that need to be addressed. So we hope to uh, have a a report that will be uh, helping the countries to uh, take some decisions. Uh, And some of the countries are talking even, you know, uh, about uh, the need for a more, um, you know, global mechanism that would support this collaboration and cooperation at global level. So to be seen and uh, uh, yeah, and to be discussed. Okay. So, Colin, given the context of the 2022 strategy evolving and coming to, to the fore, um, do you think there's potential to bring about some degree of common purpose around pricing at this point, or will it, will it always likely fall into the context of um, the actions of individual states? I think pricing has a kind of a, a special status in some senses it's the it's the best buy which has probably the strongest and most robust evidence base behind it um and so in that sense if you you know if you genuinely have um commitment from uh individual countries to try and address alcohol related issues it's you know it's it's one of the most effective things that they can do but precisely perhaps because it's effective it's also i think one of the hardest things to actually get any traction on sometimes so although i think it's it's going to be hard to get um 
unilateral agreement across you know large groups of countries with very different ideas and motivations um about concerted action on alcohol pricing i mean we can hope certainly um i might hope that um the eu at some point will uh, do something about their um as i said previously slightly odd and uh, not terribly conducive to public health rules on um the way that you can tax alcohol and I, you know it's possible that we might see some movement there but i'm certainly not holding out any hope that um we're going to see you know widespread implementation of minimum pricing um it, except where that's being driven by individual countries mm. unless there's some major you know shift in the the policy landscape sure and i suppose the context that the eu has always um essentially retained or the nation the member states have retained that kind of right over over taxation is is obviously a crux in that in that respect perhaps as well although i know that they have a common approach in relation to vat um but it may be uh, it may be it may be a challenge for for the eu to develop that level of commonality and kareen if i could just maybe conclude with you as well the, the you know that similarly you know with such advances that are taking place in marketing techniques and you know the facilitation technologies around those advances i mean do, what, what what do you see as the major challenges for the for the coming strategy in relation to marketing the first challenge um, would be to increase the number of countries uh, in the world that uh, could adopt marketing regulations. And in that, in that sense, it's a very good news that Thailand becomes one of, uh, of them. Uh, the second challenge would be to think of um, and to implement new and effective measures to, to regulate and to combat very positive messages and alcohol um, uh, advertising uh, display on social media. Uh, young people are very connected to social media. And then they are exposed to a very high number of uh, positive messages uh, uh, of alcohol products. Finland um, uh, voted uh, an interesting law uh, in 2015. And I think that such a law could be considered by other countries. And the third challenge uh, is to combat uh, the lobbying of the alcohol industry, uh, which is very strong and very effective at uh, different steps of uh, uh, the process of marketing regulations. Uh, for instance, when marketing regulation laws are considered and voted by countries, uh, like it is the case in, in, in Ireland recently, then the lobbying of the alcohol industry is very strong. Uh, and also, like it's the case in France, when such marketing regulations laws have been voted for a very long time, then uh, the, the, the alcohol industry uh, maintains uh, its lobbying uh, uh, through decades and then constantly, uh, constantly attacked, uh, attacks uh, such marketing uh, regulation laws to, to weaken them. And of course, the landscape, you know, for both pricing and for marketing policies is, is always essentially been impacted and influenced by the the alcohol industry's capacity and the and the resources they deploy to essentially curb any political leadership that might be moving policy in such directions um 
Um, and of course, you know, perhaps that's 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 for another day's discussion, perhaps. But you know, that level of of advantage that the industry have, both at an EU level and at a global level, is obviously quite significant. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank our guests, Kareen, Colin, and Karina. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed today, you will find more information on our website at alcoholireland.ie or the WHO Regional Office for Europe website. Next time on The Alcohol File, we will be discussing the corporate power of the global alcohol industry, when we'll be joined by another interesting panel of experts to discuss issues such as the influence of transnational cooperation on national policy direction and the global tactical playbook deployed to stymie progressive public health initiatives. So thank you for listening and until the next time, stay safe.